Good evening, church. It is wonderful to uh, to be here tonight to praise and honor and worship our great and amazing God. And we're thankful to each of you who are here tonight and online. Those who are visiting, we praise God. We welcome you. Those who are members, we thank you for being here tonight. It is always important to take time out of our lives to give them back to Jesus, right? Give it back to God. Pay it, pay it back. Let's go to God in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your rich, blessed name. The name above all the universe. The name above all that exist. The name above all King of kings and Lord of lords. Our great God. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. And thank you for this occasion and for this opportunity to worship you. I pray, Lord God, that our worship will and has been pleasing and acceptable in your sight and in accordance to your will and your way. Help us, Lord God, to always have acceptable worship that brings glory and honor under your name. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the amazing sacrifice made in our behalf that we might be saved. These things we thank you for and pray in that wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Be thy will. Amen. Acts chapter 11, please. Tonight we're going to be looking at some interesting uh, Bible facts. We'll, we'll do this, I think, this week and then next week. And hopefully next week we'll get into more of the unfamiliar. And this week maybe some of the more familiar. But it's, ex- it's exciting to look at the Scriptures because some look at the Scriptures uh, as, a, as skeptics from a skeptical vantage point. Some are true believers. No matter where you are, when you look into the Word of God, it's amazing to see what's in there. What amazes me is the name Christian. You know, the name Christian is only found three times in the Bible, right? It's only in the New Testament. And it's, it's one of the most controversial names amongst humanity, right? You know, to say, I'm a Christian, and then what is a Christian, and who can be a Christian, and why Christians are right, or why Christians are wrong. And it's only mentioned three times in the Bible, and yet it's created so much communication amongst the world. That's one of the ways that uh, controversy One of the ways that God ensures that his name is heard. Acts 11 and verse 26, the Bible says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that the entire year they met with the church, and they taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And I find that interesting. Turn to 1 Peter 4. Because in Acts chapter uh, 11, it wasn't until all of the Jew and Gentile, all the Jew and Gentile, all the people who could be Christians, all of humanity, came together before God first called them or named them Christians, Christ-like individuals. First Peter 4, in verse 16, the Christians were suffering saints. And there was a mandate for the Christian as to how we're to receive instruction, if you will, how we're to receive in punishment and how we ought to live our lives. And in verse 16, it says, But if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. The idea that a man of God, a child of God, Acts, please, uh, chapter 26, is to suffer in a certain kind of way. You might even call it a peculiar way. And then Paul is preaching to Agrippa, the old famous words that we hear often in verse 28. And Agrippa replied, in a short time, or some versions say, almost persuadest thou me to be... A Christian. So in a short time, you will persuade me 
to become a Christian. That's it. Those are the only three times it's mentioned in the whole scriptures. And yet it's turned the whole world upside down. The power of God and Christianity. Turn to Esther, please. Uh, Esther chapter chapter 8. Uh, it's interesting facts about the Bible. The Bible was written um, over a period of 1,500 years. Approximately 40 men. You know, different authors. Think about that for just a moment. You drive down the street and there's a car accident and you get four different police reports from four different vantage points. And all the stories are kind of the same, but they kind of work together in one way or another. These are 40 different authors of different times and cultures and, and economic backgrounds and, and, and failures and rises of, of countries and kingdoms and worlds. And, and you have this collective book that is united on every level and it flows with 31,102 verses and 1,189 chapters and it all just flows together. And then you've got the shortest of the shortest. John 11.35, right? Jesus wept. And then we have the long Psalm 119. It all fuses together in a beautiful way. And then you have this verse. Esther chapter 8 and verse 9. It is the longest, (laughs) the longest verse in the whole Bible. Listen to it. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, that is the month Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces, which... Extended from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. You say, well, why are we reading that? Well, let me tell you something. That is a verse of deliverance. That is a verse of deliverance. Remember that Haman had uh, constructed a script that would execute, if you will, annihilate all the Jews, and yet... Yet then God overturned that, if you will, using Esther and Mordecai and the whole, uh, uh, you read the whole scripture and you find that Mordecai is promoted and it's all reversed. It's a scripture of deliverance and it comes from God. It's not the shortest chapter. The shortest chapter is Psalm 117. Deliverance. Think about this for a second. Turn to Psalm 118. I know you know this because you've read it, you've heard it mentioned over and over again that Psalm 118 and verse 8 is the middle chapter and the middle verse of the entire Bible and it's a verse of deliverance, right? In verse 8, it says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to take to trust in man. It is always better to trust in God. How many of us believe that? And why is God so often the last one we go to? <laughs> we try to fix it ourselves, right? I'm going to fix life. I'm going to fix it. No, go to God first. It's better to trust in God than it is to trust in man. So you know Psalms, of course, the longest book of the Bible. Third John, the shortest book of the Bible. And the longest sentence in the Bible is um, is actually the, the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to show you another third. So the longest the longest verse of the Bible, the middle chapter of the entire Bible, and now in Ephesians chapter 1, they all connect with the idea of deliverance. 
God's deliverance for humanity. The second longest scripture or verse in the Bible has 268 words. I say verse because all of this is joined together. It's the second longest and it all surrounds itself around deliverance. Listen to what. And by the way, when you read Ephesians chapter 1 and you begin reading at verse 3, if you listen very carefully, you'll hear um, it shift from God the Father to God the Son to God the Father and God the Son and God the Father. And just, just listen to it. See if you can pick up one. It's a great, a great uh, uh, sentence to, to read. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth in him. Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who are first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possessions to the praise of his Glory, 268 words in that sentence. And we switch from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Back, go back and read it. Look at how many times it switches back and forth. And the pronoun, he, him, etc. Just, just an amazing passage. Again, deliverance. God's deliverance. What God has done for the world, for his children. Turn to Psalm 14. David is mentioned, the name David, and David himself. Uh, 1,139 times in the Bible. The only one that's mentioned more often in the scriptures uh, than David is Jesus Christ. Sarah is mentioned 59 times. Rachel is mentioned 47 times. I want to read a chapter, Psalm 14, because... Something about this chapter, if you go back and you study it and, 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 you, and you read it, there's something really important about this chapter. And I hope that as God's, as we read it and God's word is, is read to you publicly and you go home and read it on your own, that you listen carefully. Because I believe God has something to say to you in this chapter. And I'll tell you why in just a minute. Verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know? Who eat up my people as they eat bread? Do they not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You will be put to shame. The counsel of the afflicted. But the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Why am I saying that that's a really important chapter? Turn to Psalm 53. Psalm 53. It's the same chapter repeated twice in the Bible, except in Psalm 14, verse 7 is added, but the same six verses are exactly the same in Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge, who eat up my people as though they eat bread or ate bread, and have not called upon God. There they were in great fear, where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him and encamped against you. You put them to shame because God has rejected them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when God restores his captive people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Interesting. Now, something happens in the world of genealogy, right? You know, the question that comes up, um, how long has the earth been here? And there's this, there's a scrambling match, you know, trying to figure it out. And we can date all the way back to Enoch, right? We know that Adam is a seventh generation from Enoch. And we can count, we can calculate back about 6,000 years back to Enoch. The problem is when you get to Adam and you follow Adam all the way through to Enoch, uh, that's a pretty lengthy and difficult time to count. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Turn to Genesis, uh, please. And this is not up on the screen. Genesis 5 and verse 5. Listen to what it says. So all the days that Adam were 930 years and he died. Well, that's why. He got 930 years. And then it doesn't stop there. It just keeps compounding. And then verse 8 says, so all the days of Seth were 912 years. And then Enosh was 905 years. And then Canaan is 912. 10 years in Genesis 5 and verse 20. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And then Noah was 950 years old and he died. And then Methuselah was about as old as Brother Harris. 969 years. <laughs> long, long time. That's where it gets really confusing. Turn to Exodus, please, chapter 32. It gets really confusing. And so people are like, well, how long? How, what, you know, what do you have there? How many generations? And look, we have got this because God does under complete and total control. We are not confused, right? We know the earth is not 40 million or billion years old. It's an absolute impossibility. But God has given us insight uh, into 
the age of the earth. And we thank him uh, for that knowledge. Now, the Ten Commandments. Every time that, uh, that we think about the Ten Commandments, we, we think about the two tablets, right? And then you have the commandments, five commandments written on, on one, and then the other five written on the other. But that's not really how God wrote it, right? When you look at uh, Exodus chapter 32 and verse 15, then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with uh, the two tablets and the testimony of his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides, they were written on one side and the other. And so those tablets actually had the Ten Commandments on both sides of each of them, right? They each contained the Ten Commandments on them. And so it's really important that you think about that. It's a great discussion piece when you think about uh, talking to people. I think that sometimes Hollywood gets, gets a hold of our minds and you know, we kind of miss, well, this is what the Bible says, though. It wasn't five on this side and five on this. It was actually all ten on each of the tablets that Moses was holding in his hands. Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16. Another uh, thought, if you will, something interesting about the Bible. When you read about, uh, uh, I always think about Delilah. You know, my wife and I, we laugh about this because Delilah says, tell me what we have to do so I can afflict you. You know, And he tells her. Like, why would he tell her? Well, she nagged him to death, the Bible says, right? Well, look, the point I want to bring out in this is that in Judges 16 and verse 19, Delilah actually didn't cut his hair. Listen to what the verse actually says. And she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. And then she began to afflict him and strength left him. So his strength left him. And so it actually was someone else that she called in for assistance to cut his hair. Turn to Ezra, please, uh, chapter 7, and the verse is 20, about 21 is where I want to go. Now, thinking of the uh, the, the English um, alphabet, Ezra chapter 7 and verse 21 is unique. Only maybe, I guess, to those who speak English, because uh, every letter in the alphabet is found in, in Ezra 7 and verse 21, except for the letter J. I just thought that was interesting. Verse 21 says, And I, even I, King Artaxerxes, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the provinces beyond the river, that whatever Ezra, uh, the priest, and the scribe of the law of God and have heaven, may require of you, it shall be done diligently. And so you read that and you go back and check it over again. You'll find every letter in, uh, in our alphabet. Mention that verse except for the letter J. I'm going back to Genesis chapter chapter 38 in, in just a moment. We often speak of, you know, um, people say, well, you know, there's uh, that one book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned. And we've, we've looked at that uh, book. We've looked at it and we've seen that God is all over that uh, particular book. And that is the book of uh, Esther. And we say, yeah, you know, is God's name in the book of Esther. We see it over and over again. But it's not just the book of Esther. Actually, when you go back and you read Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, his name's not mentioned there either. One day I'll have to go back and research that and see how I can, well, I know Jesus, the Rose of Sharon, so never mind. But anyway, so maybe that's less work than I thought it was going to be. Uh, <laughs> I already got one, Song of Solomon 2 and verse 1. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, the name God itself is not mentioned in the Song of Solomon. Here's a question I have. The, the word apple. Is, is only mentioned in the Bible once. And, and it also is in the Song of Sol- chapter 2. Song of Solomon chapter 2 and verse 3. Where do we get the idea that Adam and Eve had an apple? 
Where do we get that from? Right? It's not mentioned until way in the days of Solomon. Where do we get that in Genesis that Adam and Eve, uh, the forbidden fruit, was actually an apple? Just kind of, you know, things to think about. Like, where do we get these ideas from? It's not in the Bible, that's for sure. Right? Uh, so, uh, Genesis 38, please. And uh, you think about, in Genesis 38, there was Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's a terrible thing. But as far as an individual sin, this is the first individual sin where God comes in and God kills a man. And it's found in Genesis 38 and verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Kind of a scary verse too, right? God killed him on the spot because of the wickedness that uh, he displayed in his life. First Kings, please, chapter 10. Two men, two men in the Bible never die. Let me tell you why that's so important. It's critically important because the Bible says another new under the sun. And so for us to be resurrected, in other words, or, or should I say, you know, some be resurrected and while Jesus returns, there will be people alive on the earth. Like the Bible says in Matthew and also in Luke, that when Jesus comes back, some will be taken and some will be left. In other words, we'll be alive, right? We'll be alive. Two men will be grinding at the wheel, you know, etc. Uh, when Jesus comes back, there are going to be some living people on the earth at the resurrection of Jesus. When he, or not the resurrection, excuse me, the resurrection of the dead who come first, right? And meet God in the cloud and then all of a sudden God will take those who are living alive when they'll meet together in the air in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Well, God gave us an example of that in that the two men in the Bible who never died, Enoch and Elijah, right? Enoch and Elijah. So we have this preview of the end time that we'll be walking, and then God's going to come back, and it's all going to be over. An important book to study um, when you're looking at the Pentateuch, the five, first five books of the Bible, and you think about Satan, is the book of Deuteronomy. Now, all of them are very important, they're critically important, but Deuteronomy has a special uh, uniqueness to it because when you read the New Testament verses, when Jesus speaks of Satan, every time he quotes something about Satan, is actually found in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you're doing a study of uh, demonology, if you will, or, or, or Satan himself, go back and read the whole book of Deuteronomy and think about, in your mind, keep the idea of Satan in your mind, and then just mark off every time you find something about Satan's activities with humanity in that book, and then you'll find many of those scriptures or ideas uh, repeated in the book of uh, the, book, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let me give you one more bit of, of an information, or two more bits of information, before we read First Kings chapter 10. Um, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and Joshua uh, all fasted 40 days, all of them. Uh, Moses went 40 days without water as well, but it's kind of this, this unique connection in the scriptures. And one of the things that blew my mind when I first learned this years ago, when I first learned, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all packed with so much information. And then you go over to John 20, and John says something like, you know, many other signs that, you know, the Lord uh, do in, in your midst, but these have been written that you might believe. And then and he says later on in another chapter that if you contain, if you wrote everything Jesus did, I guess the world's largest library couldn't contain. And you go, well, how much did he do? You realize that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John combined, those authors, when they write about Jesus' three-year ministry, you realize it only covers 50 days of his life? Is that amazing or what? It's just 50 days. 
of those three years, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God has compiled and, and I guess, concise the life of Jesus down to 50 days to teach us how to live as a Christian, how to die as a Christian, how to become a Christian, everything about God and Jesus as he revealed himself to us. It's pretty amazing, pretty fascinating. Now I want to go to 1 Kings chapter 10, and, and I want to think about, just for a moment, uh, Solomon's throne. You think about Solomon's throne, and you think about walking up to a king. He had six steps. There, there were six steps to the throne, and around top, to the top of the throne, and its rear, and arms on each side of the seat, and two lions standing beside the arms. Solomon's throne, the thrones of these kings back in those days were just pretty impressive. It was like when you walked up to that king, you know, if he, if he reached out the, the golden scepter or not, he was always separate, wasn't he? He was always separate. The king was separate from everyone else. You always knew who the king was. I wonder, thinking about thrones, how separate God is in our minds, you know, to stand before God, not to stand before a judge on the earth, but to stand before God who is separate. From all else. It's so impressive. We learn about this in, in the Old Testament. The greatness of our God. Second Kings, please. Chapter 21. Did you know that Moses wrote a psalm? Psalm 90 belongs to Moses. It's Moses' prayer. You can go and read that and hear how Moses thought as he spoke to God in prayer. But Manasseh. Manasseh one of the worst kings of Israel. Right? You know, was, it, was it Ahab? He was really bad. Manasseh kind of drove the nail into the coffin where God says, you know what, that's it, we're done. You guys are out of here, right? Manasseh. And Manasseh not only was the worst king, oh, one of the worst kings, I think he was the worst king of Israel. He, killed, he shed more blood than Ahab. He killed everybody. He just, he just killed folks just to kill them. Right? He was a murdering king. He was a horrible king. But Manasseh was not only the worst king, Manasseh also had one of the greatest conversions, which is pretty amazing. He turned his life around, showed us what true repentance is all about. But Manasseh was also the longest reigning king of all kings. You think about God. God does not think the way we think. You're like, God, wait a minute. He's the worst king ever. Why was he the longest reigning king? God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Okay, Lord. 2 Kings 21, verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And you can continue to read and find that this, this king was a terrible, terrible king. For most of his reign until he turned around. 1 Kings, please. Chapter 16. And then you think about kings. How, uh, you know, what, what an amazing position. But in those days, a king, you were born a king. Like today, no one's born a Christian, right? You have to be converted. You have to come to Christ and surrender to him. But in those days, you were born a king. And so, there's a man named Zimri. And Zimri, in First Kings chapter uh, 16, and the verse is 15, you find that he is the shortest reigning king of all the kings listed in the Bible. So 1 Kings 16 and verse 15. And in the 27th year 
Asa king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days at Terzah. Now the people were camped against Gibeathon, which belonged to the Philistines. Seven days. Didn't last long. And then I want to go back to second, uh, go forward rather, second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 24 and verse 1. Josiah, really good king. Really, really, one of the, one of the best kings that, that Israel had saved David. Josiah was a really good king. Joash, rather. I want to go and look at verse 1. Joash was seven years old when he became king. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebiah from Beersheba. One of the things we learn about the kings is this. Mama, you got a big job. Right? Right? Grandma, Lois and Eunice, and Timothy's life, life. Fathers, we have a huge job, right? Don't tell me a seven-year-old cannot, is not cognitive, cannot, cannot gain an understanding. And though they reign and, and rule and kind of follow mama and daddy's advice, well, they follow our advice. And they also watch the way that we live. So never look at a, a seven-year-old <laughs> ever again and say, well, that seven-year-old has, doesn't have it figured out. Those children, Brother James and I were talking about that this week. You mentioned it again, right? Um, I'll let him, if you don't mind, <laughs> repeat it later because I'll, I'll mess it up. But I, I know it goes something like, if you give me your children um, from, you know, until they're age six, we'll have them for life. And, and that wasn't Jesus who said it, but it's right. The Catholics teach that. What are we doing with our children? Right? Look at our children walk away from the Lord. Brethren, we got a big job ahead of us, right? Those little children need Jesus. We got to put it in them. We got to open up the floodgates of heaven into their minds and fill their minds. Because they're sponges, right? They're sponges. Fill their minds with Jesus. And pray God they won't walk away. The Bible kind of says that. Train up a child. When he's young and when he's older, will not depart. The Bible kind of talks about that. Genesis, please. Chapter 3. God loves asking questions. And God asks us to call, you know, that gospel call today, that question, that idea that, you know, will you come to me? Will you surrender to Jesus? It's a great question, you know. Will you obey his will? Will you surrender to him in the waters of baptism? The opportunity is yours. Will you confess your faults if you have faults in your life? Struggles, will you, will you come to Jesus? And then those who, walk, who walked away from Jesus, the question is still the same. Genesis 3, in verse 9. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Not physically, like God couldn't find them. Where are you now that you don't have me? I want you to think about the misery in our children's lives who walked away from Jesus. It's a miserable life. It's a miserable life. Anyone that knows God, that tastes of the kindness of God, the good pleasure of God, and then tramples Him under a foot, never has a life without conflict. You're reading the book of Judges over and over again, right? They served God, they walked away from God, and then there was nothing but conflict in their lives. The same exact example that we find then is the same example today. The only difference is 
we don't have a written record because they don't talk to us too much about it. But you just talk to some of the older members who talk about their lives when they came to Jesus. Maybe they're married now, maybe they're not. And then they walked away from Jesus, and then they talk about their lives when they've come back to Jesus. And you realize they too had conflict. Brother, in life without Jesus, the Bible says, is hard. There's conflict because we know the truth. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And if you know you walked away from the Creator and you're going to stand in judgment one day, you're going to have conflict in your mind. That's good. Because that's, thank God, what brings us back sometimes. Tonight, if you have conflict in your mind, tonight, if there's any way that we can help you, if there's anything we can do, please make it known while together we stand and sing our song of invitation. Why don't you come? Are you fully trusting in His grace?